two intersecting stories for you. A bunch of folks on the right were celebrating surrogacy for gay couples. Now, in what tone should we respond to that? That more on this week's Corey Act Show. We'll give you the facts of the cases in a moment and then my hopefully humble commentary and opinion on those facts in just a minute. But let me start here. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. I am glad you're here. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Look for me, Corey Truax, or email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. You can also find the latest in my series on the Epistle to the Hebrews out on the podcast feed. About one-fourth of you listen to those sermons compared to what listen to everything else. But thank you for listening to those. And speaking of, the other thing I want to tell you about me is I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings as their pastor for teaching. You are welcome this time of year, especially it's Christmas. A lot of people are open to it, so uh, come on out. We'd love to have you for any of those Sundays. We're not doing any special services where we're not that place, but we'll be there at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. We'd love to have you. Here are the facts of the case. Over the last couple years, there's been two prominent media figures on the American right, males, who have had their partners, I'm not going to call them their spouses because whatever marriage they're in is illegitimate because marriage is between one man and one woman. These very po- these popular media figures who are conservative people welcomed on social media the birth of, quote, their children with their male partner. If you don't know those names, it's uh, Ruben. The guy who does the Ruben report, Dave Ruben? I think his name is Dave Ruben. And the other one is a Guy Benson. Guy Benson has been a mainstay in especially like higher intellectual, Christ- uh, nope, conservative life for a while now, and he's the one, Guy Benson is the one that set off this most recent spate, or at least this most recent spat, uh, regarding the surrogacy for gay couples. The idea of a gay couple who cannot have children, by God's design, cannot reproduce, choosing to pay a woman to rent her womb like it is a uh, some combination between a Petri dish and a incubator. And then to have that child born. That child is awesome, by the way. Children are awesome. Of every circumstance, children are awesome, even in these sinful circumstances, like I'm going to argue this level of surrogacy is. Uh, We're not criticizing the baby. We pray those babies are delivered from the parental situation they're in and that God preserves them. So that's something. It was they, They did it. Here's the facts of the case. Those gay couples had their surrogacy pregnancies and births and then go on social media to celebrate it and because they are on the right voices on the right celebrate with them folks that i would associate with say congratulations on the new baby something that i would advise you by the way never to do the same way that i would advise never going to a gay wedding we do not congratulate on uh, we do not celebrate that which god condemns and we do not celebrate out those things outside of God's design. God's design for a child is to have a father and a mother. That can't happen sometimes. And those are aberrations. Those are situations where something went wrong. But God's design, God's standard, is that every child should have a father and a mother. And so we don't celebrate. We don't adulate when the, when the design is broken. 
Now that wave of congratulations on the socials from folks on the right brought a reaction. It brought a reaction from, not me, but people who agree with me, saying back to especially Christian people on the right, don't celebrate that. This is bad. This is morally egregious. No one should celebrate a child being robbed of having a mother. No one should celebrate, because uh, there's, there's implication there. If you're celebrating this couple having a child, you're celebrating the couple. You're celebrating their, their fake union as a gay couple. Now, uh, you, you know where I stand. You, I've already made clear. I just called it morally egregious. I called it sinful. Women's wombs are not for rent, especially in this situation. I, some of you disagree with me, I know. I can see the argument where inside family or close friendships, an infertile couple, or there's a, there is an issue with bearing children, not for, not for money being exchanged, literally renting a womb, uh, but having a using the the marvels of reproductive science to have a a child of the parents like they're actual it's it is a a creation of the parents but is gestated and grown in someone else i could see an argument for that but for by design choosing one of these two men to provide one half of the gen- genetic material and then some other woman that's another thing we're probably buying another thing we're probably renting renting the, I guess in that case, purchasing, purchasing the genetic material of another woman to combine with another man by design to put a child in a situation where he or she does not have a mother. That's that's bad. We condemn it. We don't want it. All right. I'm six minutes in. I've made my point clear. That intersects with the larger point I want to have with you. Now, how do we talk about that? I'm not going to say any names here, but there's a controversy going on inside certainly my Brit, my part of Christianity, I'd call it the Reformed Circles, where two Presbyterian ministers, one just a little older than I am, and one more than twice my age, have had a, had a I guess, mostly respectable spat online. Here's the nature of that spat, and it goes, it goes directly to, or at least, I guess slightly, I guess it is indirectly, to how we might talk about this error in celebrating that which God condemns. One of these men who operates in the rural north has a history of using very strong language, sometimes vulgarities and obscenity, to make points, and he argues vociferously. It's very important that he use vulgarity. It's very important that he use obscenity because it makes the point and also because there's some parts of the Bible where some prophets do it. So it's very important that he does that, and if you don't like that, uh, he has no, you know, got no, really no place for you. You're just wrong. You're probably a sissy. That tends to be the attitude. And then there is this other guy that I obviously am more in agreement with, who wrote recently, very publicly, hey, this guy who is near near the end of his life is gaining a lot of popularity out of nowhere. I, uh, I say that. I, I need to put some temperament, temperament on that. These little media empires that some of these Christian guys are building, when it comes to actual reach, how many people they're reaching, it's 
somewhat significant inside American Christianity, but it's not nearly significant as sometimes I think we all think it we all think it is. Like none of them are even as big as the Blaze. And the Blaze is nothing as big as the Daily Wire. And the the Blaze I mean uh for that matter, I could name a bunch of other Christian blogs that, at least if the, the numbers are accurate, are, are just as big or bigger than this group out there. Uh, this group just tends to be spending some money on marketing. And so when I say out there, this, I'm, I'm being vague on purpose, this group way up north that thinks using harsh language is very, very important. All right, so this other pastor writes fairly long blog post to say, responding to the culture with some vulgarity and obscenity about their sins is unhelpful. And there, there are better ways to do it. Obviously, you could tell by my tone, I agree with that, Pastor. I agree with, this is a, a battle of the Presbyterians, two Presbyterians having a, a disagreement here. I might get a little, let me, let me, let me temper this. I don't want to caricature the person I disagree with. But here's here's how I would respond to the situation on the internet where a bunch of folks that are supposed to know better are celebrating two gay men having a child through surrogacy. Here's how I might do that. Brothers and sisters who are celebrating this, can I just remind you, this is not God's design and it's unwise. I would argue it's it is sinful to celebrate things that God does not celebrate. We don't, in all cases, mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, and then the opposite. Sometimes people are weeping over or weeping over things they shouldn't weep over. Sometimes people are mourning stupid things. And sometimes people are celebrating things they should not celebrate. And we're so we don't have to celebrate just because someone on our ideological side has something in their life that they consider a blessing. And so this is this is not God's design. And I would then just continue to argue a lot of statistics. It's not good for a child. All of our data throughout cultures, not just in the West, cultures everywhere, a child needs a father and a mother. You know this to be true because if you're not from a broken home, your spouse is, and if somehow you and your you and your spouse spouse came from intact marriages, like you're, both your parents are still married even right now, you're, you weirdos, unicorn, uh, unicorn-type people, if you, you have that, you know the people closest to you at your work, some of your best friends, we're all just living in the wreckage of broken marriages, and we're, we're living in the wreckage of now people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who had broken families, and they're all broken because of it. We know kids need a mom and a dad. And so... Because it's not God's design, and because this is a curse on the child, let me call you. Let me, I, w- I want to reason, reason with you. Let me call you to repent. I'd use that word. Repent of celebrating things God has not designed. And of not thinking of the child more than you thought of the two adults. I think that's how I would say it. And I would argue, don't want to caricature, I would argue that the way that this other growing voice in... Christianity would, the way that they'd want to say it is, hey, hey you, probably harsh language, or maybe, hey, brothers and sisters, uh, stop, stop, stop celebrating the fudge packers, or stop celebrating the, use another F word that we use for gay people. 
And then if you call them out on using language that was unnecessary and unnecessarily aggressive, they scoff at you. And if, 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 I, if, I, if I say back to, to them your use of this language and unneeded aggression, uh, they, they, I think it's even unbecoming. I think it's unbecoming of a Christian. Uh, they scoff and say, no, this is how you should talk. This is a big, important issue, and we got to shock people uh, and, and behave this way. So that is the conflict. I have interwoven these two on purpose because I, th- I thought we needed some, an actual example. Here's a bad thing some Christians are doing in the culture celebrating an objectively bad thing. Now, how do we address the culture that's doing the objectively bad thing? Might I reason with them and give them, give them the response I gave you? Or is it better to make sure we use some shocking language and be harsh about it? Well, my interlocutor the very technical term for the person who disagrees with me, which is a growing portion of Christianity, and it is, I won't give you the demographic take. I mean, it's, it is mostly men my age, a little bit older than me, a little bit younger than me, who just, they just think you got to go after it. you got to be aggressive with your language. I want to interact with their arguments now. There's, if you are unfamiliar with this debate, there are Christians on the internet saying, it is very important to... Uh, sometimes the right people to be a little obscene, a little vulgar, to shock. And if you call them out on it and say that's not a good idea, they're just they're going to tell you that you're being you're being weak, and that this is a very important ministry for them. If not, it may not be for you, but it is for them. I want to respond to them. I I, tr- I try to be fair. I try to be objective. I tend I admit it's a thought it's a, probably a flaw of mine. I form positions pretty quickly when I hear about a given topic, but I think the Lord's been good in that I can then go interact with the people who disagree with me and their arguments and their materials in a really dispassionate way. I could just go evaluate what they put out and see if it's got and see what they've got and read them fairly. And I want to interact with the, the arguments that I've seen. I've, ar- I've seen it argued a couple times. Here's this thing in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel used some pretty brash language, talking about uh, an analogy of a, of a woman going after her paramours and whose, whose flesh is like a donkey's. And it's, it's euphemism for, uh, obviously, what you're talking about with a donkey and what a woman might be going after with her paramour. And it even talks about the issuance coming out of that flesh. And there's an argument here. Well, some prophets sometimes here use this very harsh language. I'm not compelled by it. I'm not compelled by it for a couple reasons. One, it feels like a little like trying to use the early part of the gospel, not gospel, the book of Acts, when the 11 remaining apostles, because Judas has killed himself, are casting lots for who should be the new apostle. And if someone came to me and said, well, I see them casting lots, that's probably something we should do. I'd go, hold on. Just because you saw them do it doesn't mean it's good for you. And for that matter, so a prophet of God did say something 
that that I I mean of course I even would hear it and go oh man did we have to say it that way? So obviously he's not he's not sinning in in doing it, but there's a presumption of then saying I guess I should have the same standards as the prophets of God. It's it's, it's me saying right here Corey and easily reading what Ezekiel said and said I should probably behave like Ezekiel. I probably got that kind of authority to do it like Ezekiel did it. I probably have the same wisdom to do it like Ezekiel did it. I wouldn't presume I do to use that kind of imagery, to use that kind of language. I'm, I'm just going to argue I don't have the wisdom to do it. If there's a good way to do it, it's probably not going to be me. And I would also argue if the people who think it's them that have taken upon themselves the mantle, I'm the one. I'm the one who should behave like Ezekiel. All right. You, I think you're taking a risk here that there's some other ways to communicate, but if that's how you want to communicate, brashly, and using some evocative language, okay, that's, that's going to that's gonna be you. I also have this argument from the actual text. Here's all the work I just did before I turned the mics on. I went to Bible Hub, BibleHub.com. And I looked up the words that are used there in that Ezekiel passage, which is key, apparently, to this argument. And while those the words he used definitely give you a stark picture, I was able to at least use Bible Hub to recognize there were other you other words, more explicit words the author could have used, and he chose not to. There could be an argument here from the Ezekiel passages that where he uses such harsh language to argue he's actually not being as harsh as he could be, and he's using euphemisms to maybe not be so grating. Those passages may not be the proof texts that the folks who are in favor of using some vulgarity and crass language because they think it's a it's a good tactic, they might m- might be using they might be using a weapon that's better used against them. When you think about that logic, I could they could he could have used a more harsh word and did not. There is, I guess that's that's really it. There is an there is a argument happening in the reformed world right now. That I want you to know about. I obviously have my my position. My position is, oh, this sounds like a now it's own proof text. And so let, let me temper that before I say it. Let me say I, this. Me quoting this shouldn't be argument over. Corey wins. I'm not saying that. That'd be very very intellectually immature. But I do just think about things like wherever it says in Ephesians. That I don't, I don't want unwholesome words proceeding out of my mouth. There, there's a context for that. Obviously, I mean, you can't take Ephesians and beat Ezekiel over the head with it and say, hey, man, you, you got to use wholesome words, not unwholesome words. I, I, I just know that I want, I want to be marked by wholesome words. And that doesn't mean pulling them in punches. In a minute here, you're going to see that. But like even even what I just said about two men having a baby through surrogacy, I called it sin, said it was morally egregious, it's wrong to do, we should not celebrate that which God condemns. This is clear language without having to be provocative. I, somewhere else in Ephesians. Eh, Galatians? Uh, no, it's Ephesians. Let, don't let there be filthiness or foolish talk or... Uh, crew joking. These things are out of place. 
I, so I, those are not, those are not bludgeoned passages saying to the people who use this language so to stop. But I, I am coming down pretty harsh, pretty firmly on the side of gentility. And I, I know. Then I get told immediately, you don't know what time it is. You're living in a negative world. You're living in a world falling apart. You've got to be a prophetic voice. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I guess we just see that very differently. And that's okay. I, I think there is a, a role for everybody. But uh, as you consider it, if you hear that, if you hear that debate and you're wondering uh, where, I, where I stand or if, I, if my working through it is helpful to you, I hope it is. That's where I stand on Christians using obscene or vulgar language like some folks up north are doing to make the arguments that they're making. I, I come down firmly on the side of not using that language. But I am not, on the, not coming down on the side of pulling our punches. And someone not pulling the punches is Rosario Butterfield. If you don't know about her and her new book, uh, which is Five, uh, Five Lives of Our Anti-Christian Age, you need to hear about it, and I'm going to tell you about it here in just one second. But I, I'm just I'm struck by this reality as we're ta- as we're trying to figure out how to talk about uh, what strategy to use about these hard things. It is it's a reminder to me over the last couple of years as we've been learning about the law together on the show, the Old Testament law, and what role it should play here in the New Testament. That some of those laws are quite harsh. I mean, you, some of them are. Criminal, criminal in nature, but you know, you start getting into those laws, and you learn about some harsh things about people getting gored by oxes, or people uh, having their their property hurt by someone starting a fire they weren't supposed to start, and those are end up being harsh things. Well, as we've been trying to talk about how to do how to adjudicate those things in modern day, you might think that doesn't apply to me because I've not had anyone burn my fields accidentally. I've not been gored by an ox. That's true. But the modern day analog might be true of you. And that modern day analog might be that you've got hurt in a car accident or you have been hurt by someone else's negligence, maybe hurt at work. And I know those things are hard. Medical bills start to pile up. You're in physical pain. You start losing wages. You're trying to navigate the process of getting justice to make it all right or make it or make it right. I don't, want you to be, I don't want you to be intimidated by any of that. Don't be scared. There are people who can help you with it. The person I want to introduce you to is Samuel Harms. He's a personal friend of mine, Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S. You can Google him. It's Samuel Harms, as in stay out of harm's way. His number is 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms, attorney at law. For real, these are not things to do on your own. I've seen people get in these kind of accidents and try to navigate it on their own. That's a bad idea. I get in touch with Samuel Harms here in Greenville. He's at 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. So if you have indeed been gored by the modern-day ox or you've had your fields burnt by someone else's negligence, get in in touch with Samuel Harms. It's 666-6666. Rosario Betterfield, she has this book out, and she's not pulling punches. Listen, I, I really admire what she did at Liberty University a few weeks ago. At Liberty, in their what they call convocation, most colleges call chapel, she straight up called out one of the largest Christian organizations in the country, Campus Crusade for Christ, because they and their leaders talk about homosexuality and homosexual attraction wrongly. They're wrong about it. They talk about it as uh, a the, 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 that the desire isn't sinful. It's acting on the desire, and Rosario Butterfield lit him up. Said no, that's not the case. We we even, as Christians, 
we revoke, not revoke, the word I'm looking for is, I can't, uh, renounce, that's it, we renounce. We renounce even our sinful desires. The desires I have in this world for, uh, uh, I don't know, any kind of avarice, it's not just me not doing those those bad things. It's when I want to do those things, that's part of my sin nature, and I repent of that too. And she went to the largest Christian college on a very big stage and called out by name the people teaching this false thing. And you know how she did it? She did it how I would do it. She didn't call anybody any names. She she wasn't insulting about it. She just told the truth. And uh, here is a book she has now of the same nature. This book is called, I just told you a minute ago, Five Lies uh, five lies of our <clears throat> excuse me one more time five lies of our anti-christian age if you don't know her story she's compelling she was in a fake marriage in a lesbian marriage up in Syracuse New York she was a professor there at the university started corresponding with a pastor up there became friends with that pastor she, that pastor invited her, uh, Rosario Butterfield and her wife or her I don't even like saying it her partner um, to uh, to dinner, they had they had conversations, and over time, Rosario, Rosario Butterfield came to faith, repentance, got out of that relationship. She's married to a guy. This is uh, an incredible redemption story to come out of come out of her life. I highly advise listening to her testimonies. Gospel Coalition has them; they're all over YouTube. She does a great job of telling her story. She opens this book, arguing against a book from about uh, twelve years ago, I think called The Benedict Option. A guy named Rod Dreher wrote a book basically saying this. Christians, separate yourselves. This whole thing is falling into, this whole thing being the culture, the country, it is corrupt beyond repair. It's sinful beyond repair. It's going to, it's going to collapse on itself. Um, it, it, can't, it can't stand the weight of not having families. It's, it's not going to be able to stand the weight of its dumb spending situation. Our financial system is going to crash because everything's built on debt. So build your own schools, start cr- coming up with your own banking, start coming up, if you can, even with your own uh, in- internet information systems, but get away from it. Get away from the world. Be Benedictine in nature uh, and separate. Cloister yourselves. She opens this book by saying, nuh-uh, we're not doing that. We are not going to cloister, our- cloister ourselves away. She talks about the church militant and marches on, and we're going to go after it. This is, by the way, now really my... It is my uh, orientation. My orientation is Christ is king. He's going to rule over all. And I want to see him rule over all. And so I want to think strategically best how to go about it. And I, that's kind of what I'm arguing in the first segment there. Uh, while I think it's just generally bad to use vulgarity and obsc- obscenity in, uh, in arguments, I also think it's bad strategically. I don't think it's helpful. And so on strategy... Here's some things uh, Rosario, Rosario Butterfield gives us. Here, here are her five lies. One, homosexuality is normal. It's crazy for me that this is having to be said in a Christian book because I grew up in a time where that was not the, I mean, it was the case that we all knew. Non-Christians knew. Homosexuality is not normal. One of the shows that I, I grew up on that I'm finding was more and more formative for me the sitcom Seinfeld, when there were episodes that included a gay character, the the gay character was often made fun of for being a gay character, 
But then when the gay character wasn't around, the the you know the four main characters on Seinfeld would say the person is gay, and the key phrase is not that it's, not that there's anything wrong with that, not that there's anything wrong with that. That's how they would phrase it over and over again. But we all we all knew what they were saying that because well we all know something's wrong with that, but and we all know it's disordered. But in this sexually enlightened age where the center of everything is our sexual appetites, we're going to pretend like there's not nothing there's there's not something wrong with that. So she goes after that here. Something that, that is bold. That is crazy to say in this day and age. But she says it. Homosexuality is not normal. It's not the design of God, but it's also it's not the sign of biology. I think she even gives one of the better illustrations, I think, on this over the last few years. It's not perfect. So hear me say that. It's not a perfect illustration, but Tim Keller had a pretty good one. This was 98 or 99, I think. He called it the uh, the Anglo-Saxon the the Anglo-Saxon gay warrior or the, or the gay Anglo-Saxon warrior. He tells the story of you know, it's, it's year 800 and there's an Anglo-Saxon warrior up in those British Isles going to war with the Vikings and those who are invading. And this Anglo-Saxon warrior has two instincts. One is he's a violent man. He he likes doing battle and he is good at it. And that, in his honor-shame culture, in his tough man culture, that instinct is celebrated. And he's brutal. He is brutal to not just the enemy, he's brutal to those in his own tribe that he think are, he thinks are weak because he's trying to toughen, toughen them up. And he's a brutal man because one of his instincts is violence. And then he also thinks that some of his fellow soldiers are attractive. He has homosexual attraction. And in 800... He realizes one of his instincts will get him adulation, and another one of his instincts will get him killed. And so he chooses to suppress it. He chooses to not follow one of his instincts. And then Keller's uh, example is, now take that same man to Manhattan in 1998. He's also brutal. He has instincts towards violence. But this culture tells him, you better suppress it. That will actually be a problem for you. Suppress your violence. But whatever sexual desire you have, fulfill that one. We'll actually throw you a party. We'll give you a whole month. We'll call it Pride Month. It's going to be awesome. This is a good, that's a, right there, that's a good argument that's reasonable. Saying, yeah, okay, yeah, you have some instincts. We all do. We are saying, suppress your instincts. And also, in repentance and faith, the same way the Lord can change hearts and desires for all kinds of people. God, he can change hearts and desires for any sexual pro, uh, pro, proclivity? Yeah, sexual, pro, sexual proclivity, pro, proclivity as well. So her first lie, homosexuality is normal. Se- uh, second lie, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. So this is one where uh, people like me could be tempted to fall into it where we have kindness above all. And I think kindness is probably not valued enough in some circles, but it is overvalued. It's true. The, uh, or at least the world's version of kindness. People want us to pick uh, modern-day kindness over biblical Christianity, where biblical Christianity will say to their family member, to the coworker, when it's asked of them about, is- about issues, we'll, we'll say out loud, yeah, actually, we think it's destructive that God did not design us for homosexual relationships. 
that humanity wasn't designed in a way where biology is malleable, where gender is malleable. It is set and settled for all of time. That uh, marriage needs to stay together. Um, that in this work setting where we're talking about marriage and uh, someone's complaining about their husband and two or three voices are saying, you need to leave him, uh, that we are the voice that says, hey, listen, that's hard. Marriage is so important. And I want to help how I can, but stick doing what you can to stick together. That's the better thing. The, that's not the kind thing. The kind thing is, is to say to somebody, fulfill your desires. Get out of marriages if they're not making you happy. That's kind is what the world would say. But biblical Christianity and the real kindness is telling someone the truth that they need to hear. Lie number three. Feminism is good for the world and the church. I wish that we would dis- distinct have some distinction on feminism. First way, feminism wasn't terrible. The, I mean, we... We got the version of patriarchy being practiced at that time was pretty bad. When we sent men out of their homes into the city to work at the factories, they were neglecting their wives. They were getting drunk in the cities and going home and beating their wives and kids. This was a pretty big problem. That's why we had the temperance movement and prohibition. They were going into the cities and abusing prostitutes. We had a pretty bad situation. And so that first feminism was really a call to men to be men again and stop behaving this way. Now, everything after that, after the first wave of feminism, yeah, I would say is largely destructive. And saying that out loud is it's bold. It's for for her to write the words that it's a lie in our culture that feminism is just good. It's just good for the world, it's good for the church. No, it's not. I mean it has eroded men fulfilling the roles that they are supposed to fill. And when men fulfill the roles they're supposed to fill. Listen to that. Being good men. Good men choose their wives over themselves. Good men provide for the children they have. Good men take care of their property and their homes and do a good job at work. Good men, good biblical men are building for the future. They know generations are coming after them and they want a good world for them. The men, the world could use men like that. And so uh, f- feminism just diminishing. Oh, excuse me. I was going to finish that thought. If we had men like that, we're actually living in God's design and how he would order the world and the way that God would order the world is the best way, no matter what feminism says. Lie number four from Rosario Butterfield's new book, Transgenderism is Normal. This is one that I I don't even have any cultural, uh, I don't have any cultural, the opposite of cachet. There's nothing in me that stops me from saying with boldness, yeah, transgenderism is a mental issue. It's um, it's it's one of the manifestations of our mental health crisis. We are highly educated, highly educated, yes, I guess, but we are highly medicated. We have the highest rates of all the mental illnesses you could ask for. One of the ways that our mental illnesses are uh, are manifesting themselves are in, is in transgenderism. We actually now have clinical evidence for that. That after years of treatment and hormones and surgeries that our the people who go through those transgender processes are just as depressed because the issue was always internal. Their body wasn't broken. Their mind was broken. And we should have been treating the mind like we always have until about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we decided let's mutilate bodies instead of treating minds. And so when the world tells us transgenderism is, is normal, we just say, no, it's not. It's, a, it's, a, it's something to treat. It's sad. And we don't 
We don't treat bodies. We don't cut up bodies for that. And then her last lie from the modern age. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance. Yeah, um, modesty. That's a, a word that often gets used in the Bible not for physical things. Not, I mean, it does. O- often modesty is not living ostentatiously to make your wealth obvious, to make your power and your name and renown obvious. But the there is biblical wisdom in physical modesty. That's I know at this point it's a it sounds like a crazy thing to say in this culture, but it's one that we should say and not be embarrassed about. There's a um, a compelling cartoon that again just same way with the Keller illustration, it's just a little off I think about the the gay Anglo-Saxon. There's a, a cartoon I noticed years ago that is a little off but makes a good point about this. It has an American woman in the tiniest of bikinis on a beach. And again, by the way, this is all like paper and pen drawing. It's nothing salacious. And she looks at a woman. It's obviously a Muslim woman dressed head to toe in the hijab and says, how oppressed is that woman? And the Muslim woman is looking back at that woman who is getting all kinds of male attention and it has the same reaction. How oppressed is that woman? The, the idea that she, she just needs to get her body out there. Her body that's going to fade. That's go, that's, uh, I was going to use some other terms. Her, her body that will not be that age all the time. It will end up not. Have, uh, she'll ha- her body is going to change. That, that her, so much of her, her worth is just her physical body. There's some, something compelling there. That modesty was one of the things that provided dignity. Again, I'm finding that in this Gilded Age show. Because the way these women dressed, you have no idea what, what, what they look like underneath. Uh, all that stuff they're wearing. So you better be attracted to them in their dignity. You better be attracted to them as a person because you don't know what you're getting. And are, are, we, are we going to argue that this world is better? That Listen, I mean, I, I, the Lord has been good in developing this in me. I've got good eye discipline now. I really started working, that, working on that like six or seven years ago, especially in gym settings because the stuff that girls wear in the gym sometimes just kind of blows my mind on what girls wear to the gym. And after like initially noticing that, the Lord has been good to block my eyes away uh, and that takes that takes a lot of discipline, gentlemen. You can you can develop that discipline to lock your eyes in places they should not be. Excuse me, lock your eyes in places they should be, even when there is some distraction around. But this is this world better, where the female body is just on display all the time. Is it better for women that they just advertise constantly, and that we're not even asking really for for dignity and character and those other ways of of being human? I actually had more things I wanted to do on the show, but I kind of ran out of time. I know it's uh, a podcast, and I could technically go as long as I technically go as long as I want, but I actually have other things I have to do. Uh, but those are the big things this week. Uh, that Rosario Butterfield book I'm working through. I hope to finish it up. But those are her the five lies that we need to be able to tell the truth on, not be sorry about, be bold about. But going back to the first part of the show, I would argue not being rude about, not being needlessly caustic about. 
uh, but just telling the truth the best we can, not best we can, telling the truth faithfully as we wait on the Lord to do whatever work that he's doing. I have run all out of time. That's some more stuff I wanted to do, but uh, I'll be back, and we'll do it next week. Maybe I'll find some time or, uh, later later this week. I doubt it. It's, a, it's Christmas time. There's stuff to do constantly in December. You know how that is. But most likely, I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.